Oh, let's get it. Monday, June 14th, 2021. Born the Battle. Oh, it was a little early there. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Wherever and however you listen to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. Personally, I am excited after all this time, the pandemic, everything. I'm going home to Washington State to see my family. Uh, Again, I'm excited. Uh, My grandma is excited. Most of my family is excited. Uh, Going out to the family farm where where there's no internet, no cell phone service. It's going to be a good time. That will go on the 4th of July weekend and the week after that. We'll spin up some Born the Battle rewinds for you. If you heard an episode in the archives and think some of our newer audience members should hear it, uh, email me at podcast at va.gov. A couple ratings also got one new review. This one is from Firefox of War. Awesome name, by the way. Five stars says great for vets. I've been listening for about a year now, and I love how a lot of the 90s and 2000s vets start off with, I went to college and I realized it wasn't for me. I introduced this podcast to my dad by playing it whenever I drive him around. Great information for him to use now and great for myself as I get ready to exit active duty. Keep up the awesome content and information. Firefox of War, appreciate your view. Again, awesome name. Love when people get creative with that stuff. Uh, Yeah, I think the first, yeah, I think I first picked up on the went to college and realized it wasn't for me uh, thing back when we did Steve Kubrick's episode. He then went on to wrestle for WWE and still hasn't finished his bachelor's as I've been telling him to do. Either that or go to a trade school and get some certifications. That monthly uh, basic allowance for housing check is there, is right there. Get paid to go to school. The GI Bill, everyone should be taking advantage of it. Uh, get pay, Where else can you get paid to further your career goals or to develop a side gig? And you know, take advantage of it. You've earned it. That's also great that you listen to this with your dad. What a cool way to bond with him. Glad to hear that he finds the information useful. And I hope the information we provide here on the podcast does help you as you make that transition. Firefox, please feel free to email me anytime at podcast.va.gov if there is a benefits breakdown you'd want me to chase down for you. Again, just like Firefox of War, please feel free to get on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Uh, Doing so helps us climb higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover and listen to the interviews, our benefits breakdowns, and the news releases provided in each episode. So the first news release is about VA winning some sort of award, whatever. Uh, Not what I or probably you are concerned about. Uh, Good for them. However, I also got a feeling that the ones that got the award weren't concerned about it either. It says for immediate release, the VA Rapid Naloxone Initiative provides free opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution to veteran patients at risk of opioid overdose. This also includes stocking automated external defibrillator cabinets in high-risk areas with naloxone, and VA police have speedy access to it 
for administering when necessary. Uh, is that what they call Narcan? I'm I'm not sure. I think that's the Narcan stuff. I'm, anyways, uh, VA established the first national opioid overdose education and naloxone distribution program in May of 2014. Based on the initial program, VA formally launched the Rapid Naloxone Initiative in September of 2018. This concerted approach has equipped over 290,000 VA patients, over 3,500 VA police officers, and over 1,000 AED cabinets with naloxone. Uh, these efforts have resulted in more than 2,000 opioid overdose reversals. To learn more about VA's Rapid Naloxone Initiative, go ahead and email the folks at Pharmacies of Benefits Management Services, and their email address is ASK as an ask. This is all one word. ASKPBM academic detailing at va.gov. Ask them for a direct link because the URL is a little complicated to spit out and I couldn't find an easy way to tell you on how to get to it on va.gov. And of course, I'll put a link at the bottom of this episode's show notes and in this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. To learn about all VA treatments for substance abuse, go to mentalhealth.va.gov forward slash mental health, all one word, forward slash substance hyphen abuse hyphen index dot ASP. And finally, to learn about safe and effective ways to manage pain, go to va.gov forward slash pain management. That one was pretty easy. All right. This next one is uh, good news for those with spinal cord injuries. Says for immediate release. Recently, the Department of Veterans Affairs accepted a donation of 50 iBot personal mobility devices from Mobius Mobility LLC to help veterans with spinal cord injuries regain their autonomy. The iBot PMD increases the user's mobility by allowing them to independently elevate, interact at eye level, climb stairs, and cross various terrains. Acting VA Deputy Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Carolyn Clancy, MD, welcomed the first donation at the VA East Orange Medical Center from the inventor of the iRobot PMD and president of the DECA's DEKA Research and Development. The IBOS will be distributed to all 25 VA spinal cord injury clinics and another 24 IBOTs will be donated directly to veterans at the local spinal cord injury clinic based on need, a clinical assessment, and prescription. To learn more information about VA's lifelong continuum of services for veterans with spinal cord injuries or disabilities, go to sci.va.gov and to learn how to partner with VA like this, like uh, I bought there, go to va.gov forward slash SCSP. All right, this week's guest is a Navy veteran. He's a musical artist. He has shared the stage with the likes of Sean Colvin, Joan Osborne, Michael McDonald, Doug Stone, Vanessa Carlton, and is toured with Julio Iglesias Jr. Currently, he plays keyboard and guitar for the rock band Toad the Wet Sprocket, which if you're a generation older than me, half a generation older than me, you may have heard of him. Uh, He's also a professional songwriter out on Music Road out in Nashville. Uh, That's how I found him here as he's one of the professional songwriters that donates his time to the nonprofit Operation Song, which does retreats for veterans on Music Row in Nashville. Uh, Veterans that take part in Operation Song's three-day retreats get to meet a who's who of songwriters and have a song written about anything they want during the retreat. And one of the songwriters they could meet is our guest, Navy veteran, Jonathan Kingham. Enjoy. (laughs) 
the music you've got coming in now, you're you're using are you still using that machine gunner song? Yes. Yes. So that's that's one of my oldest buddies in town, Jason Seaver wrote that and and, and sang it. He's he's yeah, he's fantastic. He's like one of the best. I've, he's been he's one of the first guys I knew when I moved to town, Nashville. He I knew him before I moved to town. We moved he moved first and then uh, got a place and then I'd come to town to write and I'd sleep on his couch and yeah. Oh wow. So he's like one of my oldest friends. He's probably my favorite male country singer in town and had some gotcha. He's had some big old hits, but uh, just a sweetheart of a guy and a killer singer and writer. And so when I saw that you switched to that machine gun, I was like, "Oh, that's Jason." <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, it was it was a great. Day. I always try to switch something up every year, and and this this year I was like, "Oh, let's do the let's do the music." And uh, um, Gina showed me that song, or my colleague Gina, you know her. Oh yeah, she she you know, but um. You know, they, she showed me that song and I showed that to a, a previous guest, Stephen Kubrick, who's a WWE wrestler or he mm-hmm. was a WWE wrestler. And uh, he was like, oh man, cause he used to be a machine gunner. Oh really? Like, oh yeah. He wow. was like, I want that for my, he was like, I want that for my intro music. Nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'd, of course, but you know, WWE is very tight on, on, on their own music and, and their own brand and their own identity. So they yeah. have their own writers and stuff, but he, he, he didn't have the creative license to actually change it at the time, but uh, no, he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Huh? Yeah. He's Jason's a talented dude for sure. He's one of the best out there. So he's one of the good ones. That's for sure. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about you real quick. Uh, first question we always ask here on Born the Battle is, uh, Jonathan, where and when did you know the military was going to be the next step in your life? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I I didn't realize that until, well, no one in my family had ever been in. Um, and I grew up in a little farm town in Northern California. Um, and... I actually took the ASVAB test to get out of class. A buddy of mine and I were joking around. He's like, well, dude, we should go take this test. You know, you can get out of class and go to the the theater for an hour and you could skip. I don't remember what class it was, math or something. I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. So I, I skipped out and signed up. We both went and took the ASVAB and, and you know, it's, it's a test and whatever it tests your ability and whatnot. And, I think in the beginning, I assumed uh, that that I thought like, oh, well, I did well in this test. And so that's why everyone's calling me. But in retrospect, I realized it's like, oh, well, I, si- I signed up to take the test. So then that week, the Army, the Navy, <laughs> Everybody Air has Force, your number. Marine. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's got your number. It doesn't matter what score you get on the test, really. But you uh, had to have done pretty good on the test, though, because you ended up managing nuclear reactors. Uh, I mean, yeah, I did. I, I think I like. I scored the they top, don't, I don't know, 1% in the nation or something, but I, I don't think that's yeah. why they called me. I mean, it was just, they, so yeah, but yeah. they don't give that, they don't give that job to like a guy that like barely passed it, you know? <laughs> no, I think there's a threshold I'm sure, but I, I don't remember. I don't really, I remember there being like mechanical things and I'm pretty handy, I guess. So I think I remember there was like, if this gear turns this way and that one turns this way, like which, you know, mm-hmm. I'm pretty logical, yeah, I, I guess, but, um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, it was one of those things where that following week, I remember the the army, the Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, Marines, everybody, all the recruiters in the small town called. And I remember they, they, uh, 
they were all like, well, can we set up an appointment to come by the house? And I was like, um, well, uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. And so the army guy came and I was like, no, nah, that, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like what I want to do. And I hadn't really, I, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. My, my parents didn't uh, make a lot of money. And so we definitely, uh, I had good grades and everything. I just, I don't know why I didn't, I mean, we didn't have money for college. I knew that. So then I started thinking, well, maybe I could, maybe I could do the military and help pay for college. And so then the air force guy came and I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And then the Marine guy came and I was like, ah, I'm not sure I'm that cool or tough. So, um, <laughs> and then the Navy guy came and I thought, oh, that sounds cool. I like to travel. I'd like to at some point go around the world. And um, so I I remember thinking about it. And then the Navy recruiter kept calling me. Ken was his name. Mm. And uh, he he was like, well, you know, you did pretty good on the math and physics. He's like, you should come down to, to MEPS in Oakland and take this uh, math and physics aptitude test for the nuclear program. And I was like, Meh. so I remember I went down there. And I took the math and physics test just because I kind of like a challenge. And, yeah. and I, I guess, passed it or did well. I don't remember how I did, but I must have passed it. And uh, and I remember he was so good. Like, he was so slick. He was just kind of like, well, you passed this. You might as well take the physical to see if you pass the physical. Thinking like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in retrospect, it's like. I was, Let me just get you the next step. Let me just get you the next step. Totally. It's just like, it was pretty slick. And so it was a. Uh, and, you know, the phys- I don't even remember what the physical was. I think it was like, oh, a heartbeat and something else. And so I came home and I was 17 at the time. So my parents had to co-sign for me because um, yeah. I was not legally allowed to <laughs> sign up. And uh, I remember when when the recruiter came back to the house and uh, I was talking to my dad about it. My dad was like, sounds great. Sounds great. Yep. Sounds great. And uh my mom was just kind of like, I don't know, son. I just, I'm not sure. I. <laughs> My dad was just like, yep, that's great. Let's do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I signed up. I graduated, when I graduated, I was 17, graduated high school. And then I remember, uh, I went and worked at a summer camp for us for, at a horse ranch with kids. And then I went in, uh, I went into basic on Christmas Eve. I remember, I don't know why that was. Oh, the, wow. And, uh, so my, I remember so you spent Christmas in boot camp. My first morning in boot camp was Christmas morning. And I remember that I distinctly remember the, the 3am trash can lid just bang, bang. And then a whole list of curse words and, uh, to get up. And I was kind of like, Whoa, all right, this is, this is different. And Merry uh, Christmas. Yeah. That, there, <laughs> Merry Christmas was, it was sprinkled in there somewhere, but there was a lot of other curl, colorful language that happened before that. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, that was Christmas day. I remember I went in on Christmas Eve and then I think I got, I can't remember if I, they shaved our heads first or I can't remember what it was, but uh, I remember it was Christmas day and I remember thinking like, oh man, what have I, what have I signed up for? I'd been practicing my push-ups before I went in, but that. That didn't help because there was a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you graduated boot camp, got through it. Um, I managed. Was there, well, yeah, was there ever any apprehension when it was like handling nuclear stuff? Like, I mean, I was like, in, as far as like, am I going to be bald or have some weird uh, gross or. 
you know, they're they're very I mean, I was in the nuclear propulsion, the NNPS, Naval Nuclear Power, um, like NNPS school. And they, so you you basically Homer Simpson. I mean, you depending on what part of the reactor department you're in, there's primary, secondary sides. And um, but they're very uh, what's the word? There's I mean, there's obviously a lot of regulations surrounding it. And you constantly, yeah. constantly wear a little TLD thermo, thermoluminescent detector uh, on your belt. And then you get checked every week, I think it was. You turn it in and they check how much radiation you've gotten. And if you, I mean, you rarely would exceed what you would, you would get more in a cross-country flight being closer to the sun um, than you would in a, in a week. Uh, I mean, there's so much shielding and around because each, like a carrier has two reactors on it, at least the one I was mm-hmm. on the Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not a huge concern. I have one kid. Um, and he, <laughs> <laughs> he's not weird or anything. <laughs> he has, he has red hair and I don't know where that came from. So perhaps I should file something with the VA and say, Hey, look, this, this happened. He That's has, awesome. yeah, he's, he's pretty cute. He's redhead and freckles and, so maybe that was a result of my uh, direct line of work and then <laughs> the reactor department. But uh, no, I mean, they definitely take a lot of precautions and they, they limit your exposure. And so far, That's I haven't awesome. seen any anything. I did have a tumor cut out of my stomach a couple of years ago, but I don't think that had anything to do with it. But no, nah, <laughs> I don't I don't think so. It would. All right. I think no, I, mm-hmm. I'm not. I haven't. In, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the, your bio said that's where you started writing songs. Is it like when you were in like in that Homer Simpson like uh, little seat? You were just like, you know what? <laughs> like where where did where did the um like where did you where did the thought of like hey songwriting like where did that start? Man, I I I actually didn't. I I started. My, I got. I, I there's five kids in my family. My older brother. Um, Nathan is, uh, he's a great, all my brothers and sisters are musicians, but Nate was, he was, he started writing songs when he was in high school and he's very, very well read and very literate and poetic and wrote great songs. And, um, he kind of introduced me to songwriters, like singer songwriters. And for me, that was, you know, he turned me on to James Taylor and Sean Colvin, Joni Mitchell, uh, in the nineties, that was, there was a lot of singer songwriters kind of coming up there was kind of a boom on that. And I mean, he introduced me to all those cats and Jackson Brown. So this was all like, right when you were in the Navy, he was introducing this stuff to you. Yeah. Um, and in high school he was playing it, but then he, he worked at a, in Woodland. Um, there was, I don't, I doubt it's still there because I don't think people buy CDs anymore, but there was a place called Valley Valley Records Distribution or Valley Distribution. And it was like, it was called a one stop and it was a huge warehouse on the edge of town. And it was basically where all the record labels would send their um, CDs and they'd warehouse. And then when Tower Records would place an order for 50 records, they would ship them out. So it was one, it was the biggest one stop on the West Coast. Gotcha. And kind of the only thing going on the North end of town. And, um, so my brother worked there and so he would get access to tons of records. And so he would always be bringing stuff home. And so, yeah, he introduced me to a bunch of singer songwriters and kind of helped me, uh, help me fall in love with 
that kind of that style. And then I started playing guitar uh, about that. Actually, I started playing guitar when I graduated high school. Um, mm-hmm. So I played keyboard, but I, th- the job I wanted at the summer camp after high school, they didn't want to hire me because I was 17. And um, they said, well, can you play music? And I said, well, yeah, I play piano. And they said, well, that doesn't really work around the campfire. <laughs> I was like, oh, you can't bring it. You can't bring a grand baby grand around the around the campfire. I said, yeah. well, that's a good point. To lead music at a camp, you need to know like three chords, maybe four, and you you pretty much got the songbook covered. Um, and so I've I've faked and fumbled my way through that first that summer, and then after the summer was over, I went to boot camp. Didn't have a guitar, obviously, um, and uh, and then. So yeah, I guess for graduation, my parents agreed to pay for one half of a guitar. I mean, I got a whole guitar, but it was, uh, <laughs> they, they paid for half of one. And, uh, so yeah, by the time I guess I finished boot camp, and then I came home, I remember I took my guitar back with me to the barracks and I, cause I, I ended up staying in Orlando at, at the base there mm-hmm. for, well, I went to basic and then went to, I went to machinist school. And then after that. I ended up staying on actually for six months at machinist school and, um, being a lab assistant. And then from there went to the, the power new NMPS, the power school was, uh, on the same campus. And then gotcha. I, after that, the, the training facility was at Inel out in, in uh, Idaho falls. They have yeah. a, an actual reactor out in the middle of the desert and you get certified to do your Homer Simpson out there and, Um, so that was another six months, but the first year, I guess year, almost year and a half, I mean, probably was a year and a half was in Orlando at school. Um, so, but yeah, I played then, but then on the, I got assigned to the Abraham Lincoln. And so there was no, obviously no piano on the boat either. So I took, I saved up money and bought a nicer guitar at that point. Cause then I had a J-O-B for the last two years and yeah, went down to Guitar Center and bought myself a like a legit guitar, and uh, you know Westpac is six months, and so there's not a lot to do when you're not on duty, and so uh, yeah. when you're driving circles in the Persian Gulf, it's yeah, play guitar. <laughs> so we were stationed. The boat was out of uh, Alameda, California, and then when I remember. I'd, I'd never really played out or anything. And then we, my buddies, we'd pull back into port. My buddies would go over to San Francisco across the bridge and, you know, go to the bars. And I remember they'd come back drunk and be like, Hey, Kingham, you should go play at this bar. Anybody can get up and sing. And I was like, really? I don't really do that. And they're like, no. And it was an open mic. And so anybody could, you just sign up. And yeah, so I would go and I uh, went once and I didn't have any original songs really that I could play. So I played some of my brother's songs. I played some James Taylor and whatever. And I was terrible. I mean, I, I mean, never, never was the best. And so they, open, open mic night, it's open mic night. Totally. You know? It's, it's bar like your is, first time. Yeah. That's the cool. bar is not super high. And so yeah. I can jump a low bar. And uh, so <laughs> they would, and they'd be slightly inebriated. So they'd lie and tell me it was good. So I did it. I started doing it. And then we go back out to sea. And, um, yeah, so I started writing, you know, I, I kind of started writing when I was out at sea just cause I was missing a lot of stuff back home and just kind of helped pass the time. And, um, yeah, that's where I started writing. And then 
kept on writing, kept on writing. And then when I was, I was still in the Navy and, uh, um, I started doing shows. I, the boat moved to Bremerton, um, to go into mm. dry dock. And while it was in dry dock, we were pretty close to Seattle. So I started going over to Seattle and man, there was some people that could sing and play. And so what many, year was this? That would have been like 90. Oh, geez. 94, 95, probably 95. Oh my gosh. So you're in Seattle and I'm, I'm from Washington state myself. I'm from two hours West of Seattle. Uh, where, where at? Like Aberdeen, Hoquim. Oh so yeah. The birth, the birthplace of Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Buddy Banks of the Wizcaw. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, I grew oh, yeah. up right in the Olympic national rainforest area. Oh, so beautiful um, out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, you're talking about Seattle at a time when, I mean, music was just jamming, jamming in Seattle. I'm, yeah. I miss that Seattle. I completely <laughs> miss that Seattle. Yeah. Uh, late, I, a late, late eighties. You had, you had some great, you know, rock acts that came out of there. Um, Mud honey you know, and all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, and then the nineties, of course you had the grunge era. Brad. And you're, so you were, you were right in the middle of all that. Yeah. I was never that cool. I mean, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, but, I was pretty, but dork. you were in it. I, I mean, it, it, on the periphery, I guess, as, as a dorky Navy guy could be, I mean, and it's also, there's, there's a limited scope of what you can get into when you're, you know, you got to be back on base and you got to sure show up. But what, what, what was it like to be in that town at that era during, and, and just in that vibe uh, at that time? I mean, I, I agree. Seattle was a, it was a different, I ended up staying after I got out. It was a, it was a different place. I mean, I, I ended up, I never planned on it, but like I got out, I got out of the Navy in 90, end of 97. Um, I, I just ended up staying cause there was so much music happening and I just, I loved being there and I, I didn't realize the toll it was taking psychologically on me to like have, I, I hate the rain. And so, Oh yeah. Growing yeah. up in Northern California and, but I ended up living there for, I think 16, 17 years. And, uh, but oh. there was just so much, yeah, so much music. I mean, there's an, uh, I mean, yeah, the, all of those bands you mentioned, plus all the whole world of singer songwriters. And then I started listening to a ton of jazz because KPLU, the jazz station up there used to be, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, mm -hmm. There was just so much music. There's still a ton of, I mean, a ton of amazing musicians and, yeah. It seems like every decade Seattle has a, a musician that just pops. Yeah. It just comes out, you know, yep. uh, you know, I mean, I think, I think most recent for me is like Macklemore. Uh, He's yeah. like the most recent like musician. To just, and it's always different genres too. Yeah. It's always different. Yeah. It's so it's, I, I just love the, the, the amalgamation that, that Seattle has when it comes to music. Um, was music the reason that you, that you left the Navy? Was it like, Ham, hey, I want to pursue this? Um, not, I mean, not intentionally. No, I mean, I didn't plan. It's interesting. I, I didn't really <laughs> plan on I, not as a kid, like, Hey, I, I want to grow up and go into the military. And I also didn't think like, Oh, I want to grow up and be a musician. It was like, you know, I'll take the ASVAB and Oh, well you passed the physical and the physics. Okay. Well you might as well go in and it's probably a good choice. And, and then music, I kind of, at same thing while I was in Seattle, I started, um, you know, I started doing the open mic and the guy who, there was a really cool little cafe over in West Seattle called uh, Madison's Cafe and the owner, Bill, 
he was like, oh man, you know, you'd sing two songs on a <clears throat> Sunday night or whatever open mic night was. And, and then he said, well, you know, you should come back on a Wednesday and do your own show. He's like, I can't pay you, but you can get tips. And, and so I started doing that because, you know, the boat wasn't going out. And, um, and so then I, I pretty much by the time I got out, I had gone from like Wednesday night for tips to Thursday night for five bucks to f play Friday nights for a $10 cover. And like, it kind of just, I don't know, organically had built. And, um, and so when I got out, I had actually, before I got out, I, I had, um, I started saving some money and I started recording some songs. And so I had put out like a little, <laughs> <laughs> like a little EP? I put out an EP. And I was just laughing because I was thinking about it because it was on a cassette and uh, and the, the I'd never done a record before and in, in standard Jonathan Dorkdom, um, <clears throat> when I went to get them duplicated, the duplication company, Disc Makers, I think it was, or uh, Martin oh, Audio, yeah. they said, well, the lady who was duplicating them, she was like, she was super sweet. She was like, well, you know, you need to have, a, you should have like, I didn't have any graphic design or anything. And she was like, well, you yeah. should have a picture of yourself on the front. And I never had my picture. I hate having my picture taken. And sure. um, she was like, well, you should go, you need to get a photo so we can, you know, put a photo on the front so people will know who you are. And I was like, oh man. So I remember I went down to the university Ave down there and there was this old lady who did like band photos or photos. And I can't remember what her, I wish I remember her name, but, it was, I remember it was on the Ave, University Ave, and it was like, you walk up this carpeted narrow staircase and I go up there and she's got like a little photo photography studio and um, had like the backdrops that you crank down around, you know, like different. Uh -huh. And yeah. so she cranks down like the gray, I don't even remember what it was. And then <laughs> Seattle that, grunge. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there was like a log or like a fake log on the ground. It was the, the most weird. And so I'm just like standing there with my guitar and it's the dorkiest, most amazingly dorky thing. Like, and so then I made these cassettes and I, um, I didn't, you know, who knew it was six songs or something. And they were pretty media. It's probably the six, first six songs I ever wrote. And, um, he, I remember there was a singer songwriter I was really digging on this guy named David Wilcox out of North Carolina. And he was mm -hmm. coming to town at the backstage down in Ballard. And, uh, I, I had bought tickets to go see him. And, uh, I, I, I don't know why, but I'm just like, well, I'm going to call the club promoter and see who's opening the show. And. So I called and he's like, well, I don't think anybody is. I don't think he's bringing support. So he's like, let me find out. So he called me back like a week later. And I was like, well, he's not bringing support. So if you want to do 30 minutes, I'll pay you 50 bucks and give you two tickets. And I was like, well, I already bought tickets. So, um, <laughs> so he was just like, he's let me open the show. And I was so nervous. This guy was like one of my heroes and wow. You know, it was a sold out show, 500 people. It was like one of my first big shows. And i totally like forgot to plug my guitar in, in my first song. And I'm thinking like, wow, it sounds terrible. Like I am, what is going to look in halfway through the first song on my cables and my guitar cables hanging off the mic stand. I'm thinking like, Oh, I'm a joker. And, uh, <laughs> oh, no. so I stop, plug the guitar back in and make a joke about it. And it, uh, I mentioned offhand, I was like, you know, I got some cassettes in the back 
if or my trunk, if anybody was interested, they're five bucks. And I had like a hundred of them and I sold them out. Like I sold all hundred. And I remember thinking like, wow, that, that was pretty cool. Like, <laughs> all right. And so the club owner was like, well, you know, people really dug that. Um, you know, you want to open for this woman, Jonathan Brooks, she's coming through town in a couple of weeks. I was like, yeah, I love her too. And so, um, it, but it was just thinking, cause it was that cassette and like that there was some lady that sent me in a message and said, Hey, I purchased your cassette at the show. I really enjoyed the show. Um, but I think there's something wrong with your cassette because you kind of sound like Satan underwater. And I was like, cause it was a cassette. Well, you know, cassettes would get warbled sometimes. So it was like, oh, <laughs> funny that's funny well you you've you've played with a very diverse set of performers you you mentioned sean colvin i love sean yeah she's great yeah. vanessa yeah. carlton uh you know some other ones um it was this all in seattle or it's like hey as, as you started going on the road you started playing with these folks what was it like um what, all, some in seattle some i mean a lot of it's you know, if there's a promoter in, in, in the Northwest and he'll, you know, say, say, Oh, you, you know, people enjoyed that. And I'll put you on this opening slot, open for this person, open for that person. And, um, yeah, Seattle and Idaho and uh, around the Northwest. And then, um, yeah, as long as you don't screw it up too bad, they're pretty amendable to having you back usually. And if it's a good fit, you know, they, a good yeah. promoter will try to find somebody that's not completely the same as the headliner and then but i love opening i feel like it's like my favorite thing because it's 30 40 minutes you play your your only six good songs out of you know 100 and then <laughs> it's yeah it's great you get exposed to a, a a whole new group of a whole new audience that you wouldn't normally have and i mean i it's crazy i look back on some of those openers and like I got to open for Sean Colvin at the um, Ben Arroyo Symphony Hall. And, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's beautiful Symphony Hall. And there was probably 2,500, 3,000 people there. And from that one show, like I can trace back a number of different like tours that people asked me to be on all wow. sorts of crazy stuff from that one show. Like I had a guy email me like seven years after that show. I'm like, Hey, I saw you open for Sean seven years ago. And like just crazy stuff that, so I love doing the opening act and there's a lot less pressure. Cause it's like, they kind of expect you to suck. And cause it's like, <laughs> I'm sure you didn't or else you wouldn't be get, kept getting going back, going well, back for different shows, you know? Um, but you yeah, know how it is when you go to a yeah. show, you're like, Oh, uh, who we like, ah, show's at eight. The opener will be on till eight 45. So I'll get to the show about nine. Like, you know how it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but you're also but the love, hype man. You're also the hype man being, being totally, the opener. Yeah. Totally. WWE. Um, you carry the round card around and there you go. There you yeah. go. Or the opening, you're the opening match. And it's usually like a high flyer, you know, it's usually like a, a cruiserweight title fight or something. Um, I know, see you're a, are you a fan of the WWE? Is that what I, I, I was at one point, but I still follow the dirt sheets. I don't know why, maybe because I feel like wrestlers in that with like when we grew up, yeah, we're, we're, we're just like the big hair metal bands, like the backstage, like, you know, just crazy. tearing it up, crazy yeah. lifestyle. 
And yeah. so I've always been enamored with it. Always been enamored with that whole lifestyle. I don't know what it is. I don't even want, I don't watch it anymore, you know, but I, I'm still enamored with like the wrestling industry and like how, how that's a thing and how it, how it, how it works and stuff. It's, I tried to explain it to my, I mean, I'm not a huge fan. Like I didn't really follow. I have a, I have one friend who's crazy about it, but mm-hmm. my son saw something. I can't remember what it was. It was a couple of weeks ago. My son's eight. And, um, mm. and he was like, his eyes were just kind of like, huge he's like what are they doing dad and i was like buddy that's fake like they're they're actually falling on the ground but like it's it's choreographed it, and it's, it's brilliant it's a show and he was kind of like whoa i want to do that because he loves the rough house and wrestle oh wow so, yeah but wrestle me but not anyone else <laughs> gotcha gotcha you got a favorite story from from opening for someone like is there someone that you opened for that you never thought in a million years that I would be opening for this person, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them, but <laughs> there's a. I think one of my favorite ones, and um, was there was a promoter who had had me do a few, and then he called him. He used to book the summer concert series at the zoo in Seattle. They used to, they, I think okay. they still well before COVID. Um, yeah they have a big outdoor stage. It's awesome. Take a picnic, take the kids, listen to the elephants in the background. And, um, but anyways, he, he called and said, Hey, you know, Michael McDonald's coming. Do you want to open? And I was like, yeah, for sure. And, and he was so cool and just like, I mean, awesome show. Like, and that's, to me, that's probably one of the coolest things is like you get to, you play and then you get to, you get in the show for free. Sometimes yeah. you could snack on some of the catering and, you know, get your, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> I think probably the coolest thing that came out of that show was I had a, a guy come up to me at the merch booth and, uh, he, he, he bought like 15 copies of my record or something. And he was like, man, that was great. He was super hyper. And like, he, he was, he was my age and, um, really cool guy. And, he was like, man, that's great. He's like, I play keys and you know, I, I, I'd love to play sometime. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, it's just kind of, everything's a little crazy after a show. And sure. Anyways, fast forward a couple of months and same guy comes back to a show, a solo show later. And he starts talking to me. He's like, Hey man, we should jam sometime. He's like, I play keys and this and that. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. And, and, uh, we became friends, but we didn't really, we never really played together. And then probably another four or five months later, it was New Year's Eve and he invited me over to his house for New Year's Eve. And so I went over and he had old Fender Road set up in his living room. And um, I, he sat down and he was playing with this blues artist at the time. And um, he started playing. I was like, oh my goodness, this guy is on fire. Like this guy, can, this wow can play. Just and, totally uh, blew your socks off. Oh yeah. And so he's, I was like, man, we should definitely play some, we've been talking about it. We should do some shows. So he started playing with me and he's been playing with me for 20 years now. And that's um, awesome. And he's like, you know, one of my best friends and it's just, so out of that Michael McDonald, we always joke like in the old millennium we met and, uh, but yeah, he's just, his name's Ryan, Ryan Shea Smith and he's incredible keyboard player, singer, songwriter. Um, he loves Michael McDonald, hence he was at the show. And so we, <laughs> uh, we, we have many Michael McDonald jokes at this point, but, uh, mm. so yeah, that was probably, probably one of the highlights. Cause, and, uh, and you got, Michael you got McDonald's a lifelong friend out of it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty for awesome. sure. 
Now you, I, I've seen a couple of reviews that, that were sent to me. Um, one of my favorites and I had to, I just had to share it was, uh, my favorite was, uh, more chop, more chops than a meat department at Safeway. Was <laughs> <laughs> it the, is it the Dallas Chronicle or the Dallas? Dallas, you know, the Dallas down in Oregon. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. And then another one, uh, when you know, you got reviewed by uh, VH1 MTV, it says Kingdom yields music that is divisely simple, organic, and genuine in a way that a mainstream is not. Now, touring, playing music for, I would say, a, a niche crowd, what's that What's that life like? Is it lucrative? Is, are there ups and downs? Um, you know, I've always seen, you know, niche crowds, niche music. Um, you know, it may not be mainstream, may not blow up, but yeah. the fan base is always so dedicated to whatever that artist is doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a strange time. I mean, growing up through, through the, you know, eighties and nineties and the music business was completely different back then. I mean, you had, if you didn't have the backing of a major label, like it just wasn't going to happen. And I kind of ended up in that weird spot when that was starting to crack and yeah. I actually had like a development record deal with uh, Universal South was like a label down here and uh, in Nashville. And so I started flying down and they paid for some recordings and stuff. And then that disintegrated. And, but I was already making records on my own. And so it's kind of a weird, now it's, you know, if you have a label, that's great. They'll put a bunch of money behind you, but it's not at all a requirement these days. And no, and you uh, know, I've talked about Macmore. Macmore is the one that kind of showed that you can kind of just do it on your own. Yeah. Just, you know? Yeah. I mean, to take it absolutely enormous, you have to have a team. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, Macmore, he used to freestyle on the corner in downtown Seattle. Like he's, <laughs> he, he did it completely street. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So he just found a really good team to work with him to get it. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. Ryan and Lewis doing it, you know, yeah. doing his stuff and, and, and he's and, super talented. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, uh, so it's, a, uh, it's been, a, it's been an interesting path. It's definitely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it is somebody, somebody joked recently. They said, uh, there's like, man, his business is his feast or famine. And my friend goes, no, oh, it's more like snack or famine. He's like, it's not really. <laughs> It's like, Interesting. You, know, you, you rarely get the feast feast, but, um, and I, I think that's kind of what the internet has done in terms of like, I think it's made the middle class a little bigger in the music world. I don't think there's as many people that have huge, massive hits. Um, it's made it possible to make a lower level living without having a, you know, nobody knows any of my songs. Um, but it's a, you're able to make a living. And I mean, there's a guy who put out a book and it was like, I think, it, I think it's, I can't remember his name. Um, it was basically the idea of like having a thousand true fans. He's like, you know, if you can find a thousand true fans that each are willing to spend a hundred bucks a year on you, like whether that's two tickets to your show and a t-shirt, he's like, you know, that's a hundred grand a year. That's, you know, before touring expenses, but sure. Which is about 60% of your gross income. But <laughs> he said, you know, you're, you're, 
you can find a thousand true fans and cultivate that relationship, then, you know, that's a living. It's you're solidly lower middle class. But um, so there's there's room to do it and there's ways and there's the tricky part is there's so much of it now. I mean, there are yeah. so many because the barrier has gotten so much lower. You don't have to save up 50 grand to make a record anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. You just you know, you buy logic and put on your MacBook pro and get yourself a road podcaster and you can, <clears throat> you can make a, a, a good sounding record and on your laptop at home with garage band. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's the same with, with, with podcasting. That's the same with the film, the film industry writing, like the barrier has dropped so low as far as the barrier to entry. But I yeah. think you're right in the fact that the peaks aren't there like they used to like the big, big peaks, you no. know, no. And I mean, and that's, I mean, you, you went to Cronkite school of broadcasting, right? I mean, that's yes, sir. And, well, online, but you know, I did it. <laughs> hey, <clears throat> excuse me. That, that counts. Um, yeah. so was that before you were in or after you were, that, that was while, while you, I, that was after I was in taking night school while I was still a senior uh, post-production editor at NASCAR. So oh, I was, wow. I'd go, I'd go to work and then I'd go, go school after work. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's <clears throat> the barriers are, yeah, much lower, but the, the trick becomes who's the gatekeeper to quality. And um, I think that's why the Spotify playlists, uh, curators, and all those people have come into these positions of power because they're uh, hypothetically make it easier for you and I to find quality stuff. Um, so, gotcha. it's, so it's the, it's the curators now. Interesting. I, I think so. I mean, it's, that's what will make or break you. If, you know, if you can get on the newest Spotify playlist or the new Amazon music play, whatever the playlists are, the people that are curating those playlists are the new gatekeepers to, um, to yeah. the fans. Yeah. To the fans, to, to new fans, to new fans. To yeah, discovery. exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So our mutual friend, our mutual friend and my, my colleague, Gina, uh, she told me that you're also now playing keyboard and guitar for Toad the Wet Sprocket. And my immediate, immediate reaction was, who? Um, <laughs> she said, oh, you know. And I had to look it up. And, it, and it, it seems like I was about a half a generation behind because if I mentioned that band to anybody that's like 10 or 15 years older than me, <laughs> instant recognition. But for me, it was, it was blank. Uh, I went blank. But so again, I looked them up and, and yep, it's, it's that oasis gin blossoms feel that I totally missed about the time that, that folks have an older brother or sister. Um, <laughs> how did you, uh, but it's, it's, it's really cool. How did you, um, how'd you link up with them? How did that gig come about where you, you're, you're now part of the band? Well, um, I actually, I met Glenn Phillips, the lead singer, at a songwriters weekend up in Durango, Colorado, about geez, uh, eighteen years, seventeen years ago. I don't remember. It's been a while, but um, I was a fan. I mean, I, I I was a fan of the band, and he. It was a songwriters weekend, and you get together and write songs and um perform and whatever. And I met him, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a frog. No worries. He, uh, we just kind of hit it off instantly fast friends. And, you know, we were going to go, we started, we wrote something and then we kind of blew off the whole rest of the weekend, just went hiking with a friend of ours, Kim Richie. And, um, 
we, you know, just kind of became friends in the mountains. And then he, uh, he called me a couple of weeks later. He was like, Hey man, um, he's like, I'm putting out a solo record cause the band Toad had broken up and he's finished a solo record. And he said, Hey, I, I'm, I'm putting, putting out a solo record. And he said, I need a utility guy. You can play keys and guitar and whatever. And he's like, do you want to go out on the road? And I was like, well, sure. So I helped him. Cool. That's a cool opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the funny, the irony, we were talking about this last time I, I talked with him and, uh, like he had never actually even seen me play. And like we, we met in the bar and like, I just got done playing and some people came by and were like, Hey man, that was really great. I enjoyed that. I'm like, oh, thanks. And so Glenn was like, well, you must be pretty good. Those people seem to enjoy it. I was like, wow, I don't know. So he had actually never seen me play and he asked me to come out on tour. And so <laughs> that's, that's a leap of faith. It's very trusting. And yeah. uh, so I said, yeah, of course I'd love to. I mean, I'm, fan of he's one of the best songwriters out there and singers and i mean he's fantastic you should dig into his solo stuff um too in, in addition to the the toad stuff but gotcha. um anyways I, I helped him put together a band and we did a, a full u.s tour i don't know 40 dates or something and um and and then the label dropped him and so he started doing independent records and so i started touring with him just acoustically the two of us uh, quite a bit um for, I don't know, eight years, nine years. And then, um, he asked the band Toad got back together and, um, they started working on a new record and he called me and said, Hey man, we're Toad's getting back together. We're putting out a new record. I think it's probably 11 years ago or something. He said, I'd love for you to come out and play keys and steal on, on the road with us. And so, yeah, sure. And it's supposed to be like 20 dates. He's like, we're going to try it out, see how it goes. And he's like, everybody's getting along, got new songs and seems good. And so, um, I said, sure. So it's supposed to be 20 dates. And I think that was 2010, maybe. And, so it's, uh, it's turned into an 11 year relationship. Well, yeah. I mean, we ended up doing, I think 80 shows that first year. And I was <sighs> like, Whoa, I got a bunch of solo dates and trying to work that around. And I teach songwriting residencies and stuff. And I do a lot of like with kids, high school and junior high kids. And, um, so it ended up doing 80 shows. And then the next year, I think we did 75 and now they've done since then they've, I think they've done two, two full records and an EP and there's a new one coming out at some point it's done. Um, so it just kind of organically ended up, you know, I've been playing with them for yeah, 10 or 11 years, I think now. Although we only did three shows last year in 2020. <laughs> yeah. But, but it still counts, still counts as a year. But so how many, yeah. how many shows total in those 11 years though you figure? With them? Oh man. Yeah. Probably average 70 shows a year. So probably 600, wow. 700 shows. I wow. would guess. So what a, what a, what a, you know, Hey, do you want to turn into 700 yeah. shows? That's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. cool. And I mean, with Glenn, I, I mean, the last show, in person I played was with Glenn acoustic. We went to Switzerland in February of last year um, and did a couple festivals over there. And I remember while we were there, the Corona was just starting to break in, in um, Italy and Spain and mm. across the border. And Glenn was like, this could be bad. And I was like, it's fine. It's going to be okay. I don't, you know, he's, he's definitely the canary in the coal mine. Like he, he worries for the rest of the village and that's his superpower. And I'm usually like the optimist. I'm like, no, it's fine. And sure enough, he was right. I mean, he <laughs> called it. So, 
it's, uh, yeah. I mean, so we do about, I mean, normally I do probably 20, 30, depending sometimes 40 shows a year with him. And then Toad usually does like a block of dates, like a somewhere like this summer we're supposed to do, well, last summer we were supposed to do a two and a half month run with the gin blossoms and the bare naked ladies. There you go. I I called it. Yeah. You were there. (laughs) You were there in the zone. You had them all, you were hitting them. So we've been doing a lot of those package tours. Um, but yeah, so that was supposed to happen last summer and then, um, it got postponed to this summer, same date, same venues, just different year, but I don't, we'll see. I mean, I'm not sure the world's going to be ready for 10,000 people getting together, singing at the top of their lungs. Um, We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, Give me, give me one second here. I gotta, I gotta pull up a name from a previous episode. So when all this started, I interviewed uh, Josh Strickland. He's, he's has a band called the Bayou Bandits uh, out of Arizona. And he's also a traveling nurse and was a traveling nurse during COVID. Mm. Um, he talked about how COVID was really starting to, to really stop a lot of the traveling as far as the band was going. Um, but they, they did a lot of virtual shows. How, from your perspective, from what you've seen in Nashville and, and, and through your connections, what have you seen? Uh, how is, what did COVID do to the entire music industry when it, when it happened? Uh, it's, I mean, it's been decimated, like absolute, I mean, for Nashville, I would, I mean, I was telling my wife yesterday, I went and dropped off a piece of studio equipment that I was getting repaired at the repair shop and it's over in Berry Hill area and surrounded by studios. And they're all, I mean, on a Thursday, normally it would just be packed and every parking lot's vacant. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I don't think I mean, being Nashville, obviously the music business is, I mean, healthcare is the biggest economic driver for Nashville, but music is a close second. And, um, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, yeah, we, you know, we couldn't tour. Well, it's not just, we couldn't tour and play music. It was our bus drivers out of work and the guy that runs our front of house audio is out of work and the company that installs that and the company that rents that and like the, the tendrils, uh, we have a couple of rental houses and like one of our tenants worked for word music. Well, word music, um, one of their biggest publishing arms is for like worship and, and church music. Well, she got laid off cause they closed that whole thing because they make their royalties off of churches. Well, churches are shuttered, so they're not performing that music. So she got laid, like the tendrils of the layoff is just like staggering. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, some people have shifted to online. Glenn's, Glenn's been able to do, um, make, survive and make a living off of doing, uh, online concerts and stuff. Um, and some people have shifted that way. And I think fans have gotten more used to it and he was doing yeah. it before COVID hit. Um, he was already, he was already doing one live stream show concert, like a ticketed concert online a, a week or a month, depending. Oh. Um, but I mean, looking at the the fallout like how wide like this last economic package with the the svog um what was the small venue operators grant um operational grants it's like i mean the venues here shuttered like everything it it's i mean all those people are laid off it's just like uh 
yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I think it'll be the last one, the last ones to come back just because of the nature of it. Um, so Gosh. yeah, it's, it's like the CDC, the, the, the two worst things are large groups and people singing, like <laughs> expelling, <laughs> expelling things into the air together. And like, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, no, uh, it's, it's, it's what it is. It's, yeah. It's comical when you, when you look at it that way, it's like, okay, what are the two worst things the CDC says? Okay. Well, that's, that's the job. And so, mm-hmm. um, but not only that, I mean, you take it a step farther, like my buddy, Jason, who, who wrote, uh, your machine gunner song, yeah. um, you know, he's been a, he, he doesn't tour much. I wish he, I wish he did. We've done some shows together and he's incredible, but he's been a staff songwriter, um, for a bunch of different publishing companies for the last 20 years, but even the publishing companies, you know, they pay a writer a salary every year to write X amount of songs that then they go and try to get Kenny Chesney or Garth Brooks or Dustin Lindgren to sing it. Yeah. And then they, you know, they make their money, you make your money off royalties. And uh, if you get a hit, then you make some money off the radio, et cetera. You don't make, Anyways, uh, there's different that, piles. That's cha- that, 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 that chain of has changed too. how that, yeah. how that used to work. You know, I, I'm, I, you know, I've met people through, through the nonprofit operation song and, and you talk about people that were paying colleges, you know, their kids college funds through, through songwriting that yep. just, it's not what it used to be anymore because of digital publishing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you use the, the mechanical royalty rate is, you know, nine point, I don't know what it is this year. It was 9.1, 9.2 cents per song per record last two years ago. Um, so, you know, even if you got a song on a Garth Brooks record, that wasn't a radio signal, sig single is the word I'm looking for. Um, you know, you'd make, it sells a million copies, make 91,000 bucks, you make a living like that's, um, but yeah. now it's like the streaming royalty rates, it's nowhere near. I mean, like I I would make, I would typically make on like a show day selling records at a show more in one show than I would make streaming the entire year. And so the, the shift in that. And so for a staff songwriter who doesn't go out and tour, you're, you you would be dependent upon getting uh, a song on a record and you can make a living recoup your song, your, uh, your uh, salary with that going away, then you're dependent on getting some, a hit that's on the radio. Cause that's a different set of income. Um, and so if you don't get a hit, if you don't get radio play, like your chances of making money, they dwindle down pretty quickly. And so, I mean, they're, they're trying to figure it out, the streaming rates. Um, sure. Uh, Cause eventually you're going to squeeze artists out of being an artist. And well, that's what you don't want. The trick has been that it, it, historically, at least especially in Nashville, um, it's been songwriters write the songs for the artists. Um, not all. There are some artists that write their own songs, but um, traditionally it was the songwriters who wrote the songs and that's what they're really good at doing. There could be terrible singers, but they write amazing songs. Um yeah which is one of the things that drew me to this town was like, man, these songs are amazing. And you go see a guy who is never going to be on the cover of GQ magazine, but man, that guy will slay you with his song. Um, And it used to be, they would write the songs and then, you know, they'd, and, and whoever would sing them, you know, George Strait would sing it 
and everybody made a living, well, there was that sort of division of labor. And because of the way that the finances have gotten squeezed, now they're making singers, writers, when they aren't necessarily a great writer, they could be an incredible singer, really beautiful, however that all shakes out. But it's like, well, the, the label needs to make that money from the publishing end. So they're going to say, okay, you're, you're, you're a writer. I commissioned they're, you they're, as a writer. They're cutting out, they're cutting out one of the things and, and, and trying to, it's like, uh, it's like when, when combat camera kind of consolidated and they said, okay, yeah, you can write stories and take a photograph and do <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm only good at one of those things, but, uh, all right, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the assumption, and it kind of goes to the independent artists you're expected. Now you got to wear all those hats. And so it sounds like the same with combat camera. I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. You, you just, it just, it's, you know, it's, it's changed the game. Yeah. Um, for a veteran that's looking to get into songwriting, uh, or touring as a career, what, what advice do you have? Is there anything that you can do to help, uh, with some of these, this change that we're talking about? You know, I've, I've seen your, your bio and, and, you know, we read it off at the intro, the intro that you, you didn't hear. Um, is there anything like, you know, I've seen others, uh, cultivate an audience online. Uh, you've been successful in, in competitions. Um, what have you found to be successful in helping maintain the career that you obviously love? Um, buy rental properties. <laughs> <laughs> have another source of income. <laughs> Okay. Um, no, I mean, I joke, but it's, I mean, it's gotten us through this last year when it's really, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's been fascinating. I mean, uh, having something like COVID where, I mean, I've, I've been doing music pretty much since I got out of the Navy. Um, and it like to have that all of a sudden, like, Nope, that's not happening this year. Um, it's a, it's a good, yeah, it's a good thing to, to have other, (laughs) other options. Other streams Um, of income, diversify that portfolio. Yeah. My wife always jokes it's the trickle trickle because it's like, oh, here's a check for a hundred bucks. Here's a check for 500. Like just, and that's both with royalties and other things. But like, um, I, I, I guess my, my thing would be figure out what you like doing musically um, and figure out what your superpower is in that world that may, sets you aside. Um, what makes it different? Uh, unfortunately, people's attention spans have gotten so short. Yeah. Um, but figuring out what it is that you like to do, what what you're drawn to, what you're passionate about. Um, but I guess I would, my main advice would be be aware that there are so many different ways. Like I've got a buddy that I write with. Um, he lives in Florida actually. And he's been doing music library stuff where he, you know, he used to tour and he used to do that kind of stuff, but he, you know, he produces tracks and, um, at home or in the studio, uh, he's got a little studio, but he does basically does TV and film licensing and he puts songs into a music library and he makes, uh, you know, he makes a good living. Oh, so for like uh, APM or for like first com or stuff like that, or he, his own personal library. He writes for a, a library out of um, the UK actually. And oh, wow. they call audio network, but they do a lot of TV and I mean, 
TV yeah. film, mostly Europe and Japan and Australia. Um, and I mean, I've done two projects with him now and it's, it's really interesting to see where the royalties and it's such a different economy of scale where it's like, you know, you'll get royalty statements like, well, this got used in something, the coronation crown, something, I don't know, some British soap opera or something, you know, and you'll see, you got like seven cents here, nine cents there. But like, I mean, he's been doing it for 10 years now. I mean, he probably makes 80 or 90 grand a year just in passive income. So it's, um, it's, there are so many different, in the words of George Bush, ways to skin a cat. Um, there are so many different, (laughs) if, if it is the music business that you want to be in, I mean, there's everything from the, the writing to the publishing, the studio work, all that stuff. Um, but even in the songwriting world, there's writing for yourself, there's writing for your own records. Um, and then the whole music library, TV and film aspect is only growing. I feel like because there's so many more avenues, so many, I mean, how many channels are on television? They all have background music. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, I mean, I mean, we, we used APM, um, you know, and, and NASCAR and, mm-hmm. uh, we, we have a music library for, for our own digital media here at, here at the VA. So, I mean, I can honest, I see, and I see a lot of the same writers. Yeah. You know, I noticed, you know, and I will go, I will gravitate to a certain writer cause I know that their library is quality. For, absolutely. For, so, so absolutely. I totally get with what you're, what, what you're talking about. And it makes your job easier. Cause you know, like, Oh, I trust this writer. They put out good stuff and it's, it's funny. That's when my buddy Pete, who does a lot of the music library stuff. And he said, yeah, it's just like producers for different TV shows. will say, Oh yeah, they'll look for your name when you got a new project with a new, you know, it's all separated by genre, et cetera. But, yeah. um, one, one yeah. of the very first interviews I did for this podcast was he's a CEO for a music library. Um, and, oh, he's, cool. a, and he's an air force veteran. Nice. Um, yeah. So that was like, uh, man, it was a year and a half ago. Um, Okay. At this very moment, the name escapes my mind, but I'll probably link it in the blog uh, okay. for this episode on blogs.va.gov. So, nice. so you also, um, help, uh, you talked about it earlier. You also, uh, help develop future songwriters, um, through your workshops, uh, for middle school and high school students. How much talent are you seeing in the younger generations? Are we, are we ever going to get out of the mumble rap? And the rock country <laughs> genres. Um, what are you seeing out there? <laughs> Mumbo rap rock country. That's the new genre. Combine those two. <clears throat> uh, oh man. I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. Um, you know what? I'll be honest. Like the, the level of uh, talent is off the charts. Like some of the kids, I remember uh, Ryan and I were out in Montana probably three years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, we did a two week run out there and did a bunch of shows and then a bunch of songwriting residencies and uh, schools. And I remember this kid came up after our workshop and he said, Hey man, would it be cool if I played you some stuff? I said, absolutely. love to hear it. And uh, he, he played me something and he, he was so good. And this was a town, literally it was a K through 12 combined school, like probably had a hundred kids total. Wow. Um, I'm talking super rural, remote Montana. And I looked at this guy, I was like, where, where did you, like, where did you come from? Like, what did you, where did you learn this? And he just, he's like, Oh, YouTube. 
He's like, well, <laughs> I was like, like that, the, the level of access that kids have to, to, I mean, when you and I grew up, I don't know, do you play anything? I no, mean, like, I, I, I fumbled through drum drums, I think on fifth grade and was never, I lived 30 miles out in town, could never mm-hmm. get to town. So yeah. it, 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 I was never able to develop that. Yeah. Uh, you know, any kind of musical skill. Uh, I was in choir in high school, yeah. you know, but that was, that was pretty much the extent of my music career. <laughs> But yeah, but I just didn't have access. That's I had the no point. access. And yeah. Every single kid. Well, I mean, especially with broadband, rural broadband getting expanded, like these kids, they, anything you want to learn, if you have the time and the gumption, I mean, these kids are, they have access to everything. And so, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember we did a show at a, um, Ryan and I played a show at a university in, in central California. And, um, and we were supposed to, the college booked us to play some evening concert thing and the local students, there was like a jazz program and they were kind of bent out of shape that they were opening for us. And I said, dude, we'll open for you. I got no ego at all in this. Like you guys can play, we'll play first. I don't care. So we played and, um, that kind of, uh, assuage their upsetness and, uh, we played and then they got up and these kids were maybe, I guess a freshman. So maybe 18, 19, these kids were unbelievably good. Like really. And, and you know, they just, they have access to instruction that is, I mean, I, I subscribe to an online thing called uh artist works online and it's, you can get like the best players in the world and it's like 200 bucks a year. And you get unlimited videos and video response. Like you can play and say, Hey, what do you think about this? I'm doing a mandolin one right now with this guy, Mike Marshall, who's, you know, probably one of the top 10 mandolin players in the world. And it's like, wow. anybody can sign up for this is 200 bucks a year. You get all these videos, you can slow them down, but the pitch stays the same. And whoa. And, and then at any point you have a question, you can make a video of yourself playing and say, Hey Mike, what, what do you, what do you think about this? And he'll say, Oh, we'll move your hand. Like he'll send a video response within a week. Like, wow. It's unbelievable. So I don't, I think, I think the future is bright. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great music. It's just finding the quality stuff, which isn't always the stuff that makes it to radio. Mm. Um, but yeah, the future is bright with the kids. There's, there's so much talent out there. I mean, you watch those singing shows and it's like crazy. I'm glad you're seeing it. I'm glad you're seeing it. Cause you know, <laughs> you, don't sound, you don't sound optimistic. I'm at that, I'm at that age where I'm, I'm now, I now have my musical, my music palette, you know, yeah. on Spotify and I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, and I, and I, and I'm self-realizing that I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm at that age where I'm not liking any of the newer stuff. I am yeah. getting to that age where I'm getting older, but no, it's, it's good that you're seeing that. There's a great um, article. You can probably find it. Um, it was just talking about why, well, well, you're not alone. Like the majority of people stop listening to new music after, I can't remember what the age cut out, like after 32 or something, like they say, like, you don't start listening to new stuff and how you should. And so I've been trying yeah. to, trying to get exposed. To, rec- to recognize yeah. that and still expand, still yeah. expand. Yeah. Because there, I mean, there is a lot of stuff where I hear now where I, I long for, I wish that I was a songwriter in the seventies and eighties. Mm. Like I love power ballads and stuff like that. And like all yeah. those old melodies, um, like I feel like a lot of melody is lacking these days as a, like there's not in a, a lot of the pop music. Um, but 
there are still some people writing cool stuff. So I'm getting into, um, acoustic, really acoustic stuff. Kind of like, you know, like, like some of the stuff that you do, some of the stuff that, uh, Sean, um, you know, I walked the Valley of the shadow of death. Uh, I forget his name. I, I, a lot of acoustic stuff like that. Um, and, and then I've been getting into honestly lately within the past three or four years, video game music. There's mm. so, it's so much richness in the scores of video game music now. And in, uh, like League of Legends, every time they come out with a, a song for their uh, yeah. tournament or whatever, they come out with some incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, try again, trying to expand that palette, trying to, <laughs> trying to go, okay, I'm realizing that, okay, what else is there that's coming out this year or next year that I actually do like and, 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 and sharing that. That, now, you, I mean, that's a great point though. That's another whole genre of, you know, that's big business is video games, but the music for video games is huge and it's all, I mean, when Glenn and I were in Seattle, we went to, uh, what's it, Bungie, the company oh, that yeah. makes, we went Halo. Uh, yeah. So Glenn's friends was one of the developers there. And so we got a tour and they took us to their whole, like they have a whole composing soundstage, everything. And it's huge, but like a big part of it is it's all, I didn't realize it's like, well, if you go through this part, it triggers this song. And if you go through this part, it, there's all these different music cues that are triggered depending on where you go in, in that world. In the game or in the story yeah. or, yeah. No, yeah. I remember there was, there was one that really resonated. It just picked my brain. I was like, wow, I can't believe they chose this for this scene. And, and it was a uh, red dead redemption when you're finally coming home and it was <laughs> an acoustic song. Wow. Like you're going, and it was like a, like an old timey Western feel as you're coming home to see your family after completing all these missions. Yeah. And it was just like, I remember going, wow, that was a really unique and good choice, Yeah, you know? And it was just like, and you're riding your home on your horse and I don't know, it was, it was, it was really, I was, it really peaked, you know, cause you hear all the, all the big scores and all that stuff, all the, but that right there was simple and it was impactful. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, it was right on the money. Um, and they didn't you use also, Old Town Road. I mean, it could have taken yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now you, you also donate time and helping fellow veterans write songs about their experiences uh, through Operation Song. Uh, yeah. How, uh, you know, I've always, I've, I've seen it and I've interviewed people that I've interviewed veterans that have, that have gone through the program on that side. Oh, cool. Uh, how have those experiences been for you? Um, You know, it's, it's amazing. The guy who started it, Bob Regan, um, he's just, he, he's, he's one of those people that, uh, like he's one of those people when you meet him, he's, he's incredible songwriter. I mean, guy wrote hits for like (laughs) everybody, Keith Urban to George Strait, like Garth, like he, he's one of the old school Nashville songwriters. I remember the first time he called me and we had coffee and stuff and he's like, he's so passionate about it for all the right reasons. And he's one of those people that I think who is not a vet, but like is so he's just like, yeah, I don't even know how to say it, but he's, he's awesome. And his heart's in the right place. And he does amazing. He, he puts together amazing. He's got a great board of directors put together and, um, yeah. and the impact on that he's been able to have, um, with the veterans. It's just, I mean, the it's, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, he's there. They've been doing some, well, right before COVID, the last one I did was right before COVID. Um, they were bringing groups of 10 vets down from the DC area. Um, yeah. and, 
and then we we would write they pair you up um with a vet and then you write and then the last it's like a three-day thing you write uh work it up do a like a work tape on it and then track it so we go into the studio and isn't it like the first day you get to know the veteran kind of get to know them kind of they kind of get to hear your styles and then the second time second day it's like a conversation with the veteran about whatever they want to write about and then and then you come up with a song that night it's pretty incredible yeah we i mean it's 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 really cool because i think a lot of times that the mystery of songwriting it parlayed over the beautiful stories of people's lives or tragic stories i mean just it's 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 therapy that's it's their story like trying to tell their story um yeah it's it's a it's a beautiful thing i got one of my dearest friends here in town cindy morgan um she's unbelievable writer and she's done so many of them and uh like her ability to draw out stories she's done they've had some that are just for women that she's worked with that are yeah anyways it's 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 an amazing organization and um i know gina's board of directors on that too yeah 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 and then the third day um it's uh it's tracked and then played in like a concert hall too yeah yeah Yeah, we, we perform it usually the last day in front of whoever can come. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's actually the last one I did was with a guy with, was with, with a Navy vet. Um, and he, he, he did a little cameo on the track. He got up and cause I was, I said, man, you want to sing it? He's like, no, I don't want to sing it. He's like, but so he did like a little spoken word piece. Um, he, he spoke the chorus on it, you know? Oh, wow. <clears throat> it was a, something he had come up with. He said, you know, I'm, um, uh, I'm not as good as I once was. Uh, what was it? Uh, better to, better to, not as good as tomorrow. I'm better today, but not as good as tomorrow. And so it was like this mantra that he had for himself. I'm better today, but not as good as I'll be tomorrow. And so this whole, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, and the, the list of songwriters that he's got in there is, it's, it's a fantastic group of songwriters. So. Yeah. Now, and, and, and including yourself, which is great. Um, I've seen this, I've seen this in action. I've seen Operation Song in action and I've seen uh, that it's very cathartic for veterans to, yeah. to write a song about whatever they want to write about. Um, is it cathartic for you? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about co-writing with somebody is being able to um, relate and empathize and, but also to see that to see some, someone realize how their story is being, um, put into words and put into song. And a lot of times it's just taking what they actually say and, you know, making it fit into the framework of a song. Um, sometimes it's trying to fish it out of them a little bit more. Um, but a big, a huge part of it is establishing that rapport and that trust because it's super vulnerable. I mean, it's co-writing. If you're being real about it, it's, uh, it can be terrifying. And it's one of the reasons I haven't done a lot of co-writing online this last year, just because trying to get intimate and, uh, with someone that you've never met before and try to establish that trust over a screen. Not that I don't trust you, Tanner, but, um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's more difficult sometimes. It's a tall order and yeah. being able to relate 
but you're right. I mean, they they run the gamut. Sometimes they're, I mean, I wrote, I remember one of the first ones I did was with a vet from uh, Clarksville and it was, you know, he was going on vacation and he was excited to take a vacation. Like he, and so we wrote a song about going to the beach. Like it was a feel good, happy song. Um, and you know, it, but it, it, it runs the gamut. I mean, but the crazy thing was the last one that I did with one of the vets from DC. Turns out we had like five, he was a Navy vet. We had like five friends in common that we had both served with. Oh, wow. We had missed each other. Um, on duty stations, but like, because he was in, he, he didn't, I didn't tell him in the beginning that I was a vet, but, and then he, uh, we were talking and I, I was asking him like what he did in the service and he was kind of coy about it. And, and then he said something and I was like, Oh, were you a nuke? And he was kind of like, huh, how, how do you know that? And I was like, well, all the things you're saying sounds like you were a nuke. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, Oh, so was I. So then it's like, you know, he's like, but you didn't answer my question. How do you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. And I was like, you know, that guy by chance, he's like, Oh yeah, I served with, and it's like one of those crazy. So then, you know, you have, you have, uh, an established bond of, uh, of, of common shared experiences that you can draw on. And, uh, yeah. So it's, and so it makes the, it makes probably makes the process of writing a song so much better once you have that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they, 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 I mean, Bob has done a bunch with like some World War II vets, a lot of Vietnam vets. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. So it's What's the uh, process of writing a song in a day. Like, is that, is that, that's not normal, is it? Or is it? Uh, it can be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the weird thing. Sometimes it's a, I got some, some that I've been working on for years and then those usually aren't the best ones. I mean, the best ones usually end up being, uh, the ones that tumble out and, you know, but yeah, I mean, when you have a tracking session scheduled the next day with a bunch of union session players, like you got to finish it. So (laughs) you'll get it done, but no, I mean, that's pretty typical. I mean, in, in normal non COVID times, um, the typical like staff songwriters here in town will do a 10 a.m. and a two and a one or t- a 10 and two. Like they'll write 10 to 10 to one, take lunch and then come back at two and write two to five, two to six. Some will even do an evening session. You know, sometimes wow. they'll write a song in each of those three hour blocks. So wow. it's definitely not, not unusual to write a song in a couple of hours. If it's, I, I would say a lot of times, you, if it's somebody you haven't written before, you spend an hour or two getting to know that person. Yeah. Figure out where you're both at in life and what you want to write about and figure out, I mean, as we, in, in Nashville, most country songwriters write from a title, at least old school ones, the new ones write from a track. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the old school guys, like they wouldn't, you wouldn't even start writing the song until you have the title. Once you have the title, I mean, you write the song in 45 yeah. minutes a lot of times. So, so it's, it's the right inspiration can spur the, takes the time. Absolutely. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, Jonathan, what's, what's one thing that you learned during your time in service that you apply to what you do today? Um, I, I daily run a nuclear power plant. That's really what I've applied. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. anything, anything, you know, any intangibles, any, uh, um, you know, it's interesting. I think about it a lot. Like I, 
I'm so glad that I did it. Um, especially having nobody in my family having done it and no reference. Um, it definitely, I mean, I've always been a hard worker, but it instilled in that, you know, get up and make stuff happen. Discipline. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think it was also great. Like for me, I grew up in a little farm town and didn't have like, we didn't travel a whole lot. We had one summer yeah. trip. Yeah. So to be able to like that forced, like, okay, here, you're going to figure out how to relate and get along with people from all over the country, from all different walks of life. Like that awareness of being able to navigate people. Um, it's, uh, I think that's been an invaluable skill. Um, and the, the 10% off at Lowe's isn't bad either. Well, Jonathan, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground um, in, in about an hour. See, we did an hour over than what you thought it was going to be. Oh, Outstanding. Man. Outstanding. <laughs> is, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked that you think is important to share? Man. Um, no, I mean, I, I just, I would say that I remember when I was getting out, I, I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I feel like there are so many resources now. Um, and in the beginning I was a little reticent to like utilize them. Um, but there are so many veteran things that are available to us, um, that, that you, you have obviously been illuminating on a lot of your podcasts, a lot of the benefits and a lot of the programs. Trying to, trying uh, to, absolutely. Uh, no, and, and really it, it's just an ex- exploration in myself and trying to find it too. Cause I, I, I had no idea. I, yeah. I was like, you, I, I ran from the government yeah. as far as I could, you know, I, first I didn't out. even know that like I was entitled to VA healthcare when I got out and wow. I got, I got medically discharged and like, I didn't even know and I got out and like, I ended up breaking my arm, uh, one time and the, you know, I went to the VA cause it was down the street from my house and then they were like, okay, you're good to go. And I was kind of like, what? And they explained to me like, okay, you got medically discharged and all this stuff. And like, I, I hadn't, I didn't even know. And so I guess that would be the thing I would say is, it, you know, find out about your benefits and all that stuff. And it's a, uh, Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, I know that I feel like the VA gets a lot of flack and I feel like they've been really great for, I mean, in my experience, my, we have a a great VA facility here in Nashville and, um, yeah, it's, I got, I got, I have good things to say about the VA. So learn, learn, learn what your benefits are. That's, that's, that's what you're leaving. That's the takeaway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Very good. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, colleague Gina, she always talks about your talent and even sent me a video of you freestyling when, uh, oh, when no. I, can't remember, I can't remember what, what the crew, uh, that came in to document operation song, but it was, it was hilarious and incredible. Um, <laughs> oh, you, uh, you CBS mind yes, came and did a thing. Got CBS did. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You mind taking us off with a, with a Jonathan Kingham, uh, either song or original freestyle session or. <laughs> Um, I, I don't have my thing plugged in. I could, you may have to edit it. Do you edit this after? Yeah, I totally, I, I edit. Yeah. I, I, I try to edit them down to an hour as far as the interviews go. So you'll probably 
probably cut down about an hour. You know, I, I edit what I can. Uh, sometimes the content's so good, I just leave it in and and, and everything too. So you just it, you'll never know. But I do edit it absolutely. Okay. All the awkward okay. pauses and the ums and uhs and all that stuff and like what we're doing <laughs> right now. Like I, I will totally cut that out. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Jonathan, uh, let's uh, take us out. All right. I guess I'll uh, <clears throat> I'll sing a song. Uh, song about biscuits okay <laughs> very good that's probably what needs to happen because uh because i'm in the south and this is uh yeah this is to everybody getting back to traveling and working again about what you were talking about in the video game coming home it's called when daddy gets home You're too humble. You're too humble. Man. Jonathan, thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. For sure. Thanks for having me on. Great to meet you. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing for all the vets and raising the awareness and raising the roof. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger. I still had the addictions. But we didn't talk about that came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I 
want to thank Jonathan for spending time with us here on Born the Battle. For more information on Jonathan, you can go to jonathankingham.com forward slash bio. That's Jonathan without the H in John and King Ham. And it's all one word. That's jonathankingham.com forward slash bio. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week was nominated by one of our Born the Battle interns. And it is from Vantage Point's American Veteran Series. I'm going to read an abridged version of this story, but it, but this is a series that our digital media interns here at Vantage Point, otherwise known as blogs.va.gov, do. They, they do research on a veteran and write an in-depth blog about them. Hearing some feedback from the interns, some of these young interns have never known a veteran. There are no veterans in their family. And in writing these in-depth stories, and you know, sometimes it actually means talking to the veteran they're writing about or their family members, it gives these young interns a chance to learn about a veteran and what they mean to our society as a whole. It's a pretty cool series, and you can check out the entire American Veteran series on blogs.va.gov. From the Navy's founding to modern day, its members, active, reserve, and civilian, are bound to the honors of honor, courage, and commitment. That's the entire Department of the Navy, Marines included. Navy veteran Harvey Milk held on to each of these values throughout his civilian life with great care. When he made history by becoming California's first openly gay elected official in 1978, it was clear that Milk had integrated the Navy's core values into his advocacy and activism. He effused the values of honor, courage, and commitment as he fought to expand gay rights. Milk knew that he was gay at an early age but kept his sexuality private for much of his life. Fearing his mother's disapproval, Milk kept his sexuality to himself. But by age 14, Milk felt he could not keep suppressing his identity and decided to come out to himself and a few friends. Still keeping his sexuality mostly hidden, Milk enlisted in the Navy during the early 1950s. He served for three years and 11 months before being discharged at the rank of lieutenant junior grade. The type of discharge he received and the reason for his discharge is debated but archives in the San Francisco Public Library suggest that Milk was given an other than honorable discharge. In released naval records, it was discovered that Milk was threatened with being court-martialed for allegedly participating, and this is quoting the naval records, a homosexual act. After being discharged, Milk drifted across multiple states for the next decade of his life. In 1972, he settled down in San Francisco's Castro District and opened up a camera shop. Swept up by the Castro's gay liberation momentum in the 1970s, Milk found his way to fight for the gay community. Politics. Mustering up the courage to run as an openly gay man was hard enough. Kickstarting his political career was, however, an even harder task. Milk ran for office three times in 73, 76, and 77, losing each one of them. Despite having suffered many defeats, Milk refused to give up and remained committed to the expansion of gay rights. In each failed election, he gained more votes. In 1977, after reforms to how San Francisco conducted its elections, Milk ran for the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and won. Sworn into office in 1978, Milk became one of the city's most vocal gay rights defenders. That same year, California Proposition 6, which was an initiative to ban gay and lesbian people from working in public schools, was scheduled for a vote in November. Milk launched a tireless campaign to defeat the initiative. And on November 7th, 1978, the night that Proposition 6 was defeated in a landslide, 
Milk gave his every gay person must come out speech. Throughout his political career, Milk always knew his chances of being assassinated were high. On November 27, 1978, a disgruntled fellow city supervisor, Dan White, shot and killed Milk. Even death could not stop Milk from making his voice heard. Fully knowing his likelihood of being killed, he made a tape recording only to be released if he was assassinated. In that recording, just as he said throughout his short political career, he called for gay people to, I'm quoting now, to come out. Only that way will we start to achieve our rights. In 2019, recognizing Milk's legacy and dedication for gay rights, the Navy began constructing a fleet oiler that they intended to name in his honor, the USNS Harvey Milk. Embodying the values of honor, courage, and commitment throughout his gay advocacy and activism, Milk upheld his duty as a member of the Navy. Navy veteran Harvey Milk. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, which Born the Battle is also on, Rally Point, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. We'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly day and night. Brain simplified till we die another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the tune of falling brass. And a purple heart And a Russian-made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them, boys, I'm laying down Machine gunner Bullets fly, they in that brain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one